So far, our story has taken us from a very unconventional marriage. A marriage and a love story unlike any you've probably ever read or seen. Gomer has taken her adultery to new levels. Described in chapter 1 verse 2 as the vilest of adultery and unfaithfulness. Now you probably know if you've been around for a while, this marriage between Hosea and Gomer symbolizes God's relationship with Israel. Hosea plays the role of God and Gomer plays the role of unfaithful, adulterous Israel. We can bring the story into the New Testament and recognize that the parallels are still there. See, I'm Gomer. I'm unfaithful to my core. I'm adulterous in my affection and my commitment to my Creator. That's why I cannot save myself. I can consider myself a good person, but I'm not righteous. I might do some good things with my one precious life that I'm given, but I'm not without sin. In the eyes of a righteous and holy God, I'm an adulterer. I'm a cheater. The book of Hosea is all about God's love. We began several weeks ago, Jonathan actually kicked it off with God's covenant love. I want to make sure everybody understands that God's love for you is not based upon feelings for you. We fall in love, it's because we feel a certain way when we're around someone. We're all warm and fuzzy inside. We say we're falling in love. God chose to love us. We didn't overwhelm him to the point that he had to have us. We didn't impress him with our ability in any way or our character in nature. God wasn't overwhelmed with warm, fuzzy feelings when he decided to engage in a covenant relationship with us. See, it's deeper than a contract because a contract is not based upon love. But a covenant relationship is. Then we talked about tough love in chapter 2. God knows how and when to be tough with us. Hosea knew how and when to be tough with Gomer. I think one of the reasons there's a disconnect with us when we talk about tough love, and we sang the song a moment ago, God will never forsake us. Not for one moment will he forsake us. I think when we're thinking about a loved one, when we're thinking about a son or a daughter, we're thinking about someone that we care about who's making poor choice after poor choice after poor choice, and someone says, look, I think we need to back away. And let them walk this path. They need to learn the tough lesson themselves. One of the reasons I think we don't want to do that is because we associate tough love with forsaking. If I let them go this way, it's like I'm forsaking them. God never once forsook Israel in the Old Testament. He never once washed his hands of his chosen people. That's because of the covenant. He did, however, set up boundaries. He did, however, press them in. He did, however, allow hardship to come upon them. To drive them back to him. And then last time we talked about tenderness. Tenderness is something that many of us, especially guys, we're just not really good at. When I think of God, I can probably think of a hundred other things about him, his character, his ways, his love, before tenderness makes the list. But God, your heavenly father, is the perfect balance between toughness and tenderness. He knows when to be tough and he knows when to be tender. And then Tyler did a really good job. From chapter 3 with redemptive love. The Bible teaches that while we were sinning. While we were in the middle of sin. Call it adultery. Call it failure. Call it what you want. 
But it's what separates us from God in the first place that God sent Jesus to redeem us. The story of Hosea and Gomer is one where Hosea actually goes and buys Gomer as a slave, a sex slave, basically. That's why she's there being auctioned. Hosea pays a steep price for Gomer. God pays a steep price for our redemption, the blood and the broken body of his son, Jesus Christ. Today, we get to the response. How do you respond to all this? How did Gomer respond? How would Israel respond? Now, I want to bring you up to speed on some of this history because I don't want you to be lost and intimidated by the Old Testament. At this time in Israel's history, the kingdom of Israel has been divided. Remember, King David was the grandest kingdom Israel ever knew or the grandest king. His son Solomon was a grand king as well. Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, along with a man by the name of Jeroboam, who was one of Solomon's political appointments, they decided it would be best for their interest to split the kingdom, divide the kingdom. And Jeroboam would go be the king of the northern kingdom, sometimes called Ephraim or Israel. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, would be the king of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. So all of the prophets that you read about in your Old Testament are assigned to either the northern kingdom, their king and people, or the southern kingdom, their king and people. So Hosea, because of chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, we understand, is basically assigned to the northern kingdom to be the mouthpiece of God, to have the king's ear, to speak to all the people in the northern kingdom of Israel. Before Hosea came along, there were prophets you probably have heard of. Elisha, Elijah, Amos. While Hosea was the prophet to the northern kingdom, his contemporaries in the southern kingdom were prophets like Isaiah, I know you know that name, and Micah. It was the prophet's job to speak for God or on behalf of God and drive the people back to the presence of God. Now, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, all of the kings in Israel, the northern kingdom, were evil. Not one of them pursued after the one true God. In fact, each one was more nasty and idolatrous than the one before. Hosea's message to the kingdom is repent, turn around, come back, you adulterous generation. But why should they? At this particular time in historical Israel, things are going pretty well. There are jobs to be found. There's money to be made. The crops have been blessed. The gardens are growing. The boundaries are expanding. Trade and commerce are moving forward. Why would the people turn and return to God? I find that interesting because seldom does prosperity lead to behavior that is pleasing to God. You ever notice that? Seldom does good times drive us to good behavior that pleases God. Quite often it's the other way around. When we hit the bottom, man, when we are spiraling downward, that's when we get serious about the relationship We have with God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's often what drives us to him. So here, Israel's doing all right. They're not suffering. They're not in exile. Why would they return? Israel had prospered. And on the outside, she was doing well. But on the inside, she was dying internally of decay. Sound familiar? I don't think I'm the only preacher to come down the line to say something like this. America has been blessed of God. We are the wealthiest, most prosperous, most successful nation in the history of mankind. On the outside, it appears we've got it made. We've got everything. But I fear that on the inside, we're dying from decay. 
Even the priests of the day were in trouble with God. In chapter 4 and verse 6, God scolds the preachers. He says, my people are ignorant because you're too afraid to teach the truth. I look at our churches today and I say, wow, you don't hear a lot about commitment. You don't hear a lot about surrender. You don't hear a lot about sorrow for our sin before God. That was the problem in Hosea's day. The people knew nothing of true worship in the presence of God. Baal worship at this time was rampant. You see, when God's people moved into the land known as the promised land, God warned them specifically through Joshua. Now, you're going to come in contact with Canaanites and Amalekites and Amorites and Jebusites, and they're going to worship differently. But you remain faithful to the one true God. The prophets of Baal were worshipped in this century and even by God's people. Do you realize that if you were a 13 or 14 year old young lady in this particular historical time frame, you very likely offered your virginity to a priest of Baal in exchange for the promise of prosperity and fertility. Children were sacrificed to this God. Sexual adultery, the worship of Baal, often involved all kinds of sexual perversion. Israel went to church, just like we go to church. They called it temple, and they went on Saturday, not necessarily Sunday like us. But at the very same time, they worshipped Baal on every hillside outside of the city. God calls Hosea to guide Israel to return to a faithful relationship with the Lord. That is Hosea's plea. Just like Hosea pleads with Gomer to come back, God pled with Israel, come back, and God may be pleading with some of you, come back, come back. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 6. The Bible says, come, let us return to the Lord. That's the theme. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. Do you realize that there is no one and nothing is capable of the restoration, the reinstatement like God? When we stumble, when we fall, when we're torn to pieces, when we've been wounded by our decisions, there is no one and nothing that can reinstate us, that can restore us like God. Assyria In chapter 5 and verse 13. At one time, chapter 5 verse 13, Israel turned to Assyria and said, help us. But Assyria failed. They weren't able to cure you. They weren't able to heal your sores. There is no capacity for healing and reestatement that's better than God's. God could heal Israel. And often when we turn, we turn to, away from God and to something we think will get us back on track. But I'm here to tell you, And Hosea's example is a great story, is a great example that there is no one and nothing capable of reinstating you, of restoring you like God. Verse 2 says, after two days he will receive us or revive us, and on the third day he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. He's saying, once we return, once we turn, once we respond, in a very short time, God is going to restore Israel. He's not going to drag this thing out. If we'll simply respond, if we'll simply return, 
in a very short time, because God is God and capable of grand reinstatement, grand restoration. He can heal your marriage. He can heal your body. He can give you cause for hope. Nobody can do that like God. And in a very short time, we're going to live in his presence. Verse three. So let us acknowledge the Lord. Now, I don't really like that word, because when I think of acknowledging God, I I think of a golf professional walking off the 18th tee or green after he's hold the putt and he acknowledges the cheers of the crowd. Do you see how they do that? They kind of tip their cap. But that's not what the word means. The word is translated acknowledge, but it is much, much deeper, much more intimate than simple acknowledgement of God. Hosea is telling Gomer and Hosea is telling Israel and God is telling us and I am telling you that what God wants from you is a commitment to pursue him, to go after him. You see, that's why he then says, let's press on. That word literally means pursue, press on to acknowledge him. For as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Do you know how precious rain was and is to people that live in that part of the world? It might go months without raining at a time. The Bible says that God withheld the rain for years on Israel as part of his tough love procedure. And when the rains fell and the crops were nourished, you know, when I think of a spring rain or a summer rain, I think of my... Mine and Amy's living on a dirt road. I wish we could take the month of August and just remove it from the calendar. Pretend it never existed. Because I can hang in there through June and I can press on through July. But when it gets hot and dry in August and every car that goes down our dirt road just is followed by this dense cloud of dust and everything about your land, your trees, your leaves, your grass, Your carport, your furniture on the front porch is covered with this thin layer of dust. I hate it. But when it rains overnight and the humidity drops and you wake up the next morning and the leaves are bright and green again and the grass no longer crunches under your feet when you walk on it and it almost feels like the air is clean and it feels like it's going to be a beautiful day. (laughs) It may wind up being 103 just like it was the day before. But the rain changes it all. That's what I'm hearing when I read this. What God is painting for us is a picture of restoration, of reinstatement, if we'll only respond. Now, in the video a moment ago, you saw Gomer remembering, okay? She's having flashbacks, the good and the bad and the ugly of her story thus far. And in chapter 6, she responds. But before we explain the response, how God wants us to respond, I've got to lay this big idea on you. Here it is. God wants our love for himself exclusively. God wants your love all for himself exclusively. Now, that's easily seen in the story of Hosea and Gomer because you say, Gomer, you're way out of bounds. You're married to Hosea. He should get your love, not these other men, not these other vices, not these other poor choices. Obviously, we get it when we're talking about Hosea and Gomer. But let me remind you, God also wants your love exclusively, undivided love and attention from things that are good, from things that are necessary, things like work. 
Things like money. Things like priority. Things like recreation. Hosea, what Hosea wants from Gomer is the same thing God wants from you. Hosea had all the power because of the Old Testament law and the culture in which they lived. Hosea could have had her arrested. He could have not only had her arrested, he could have then divorced her. He could have not only then divorced her, he could have had her stoned. You see, in this covenantal relationship we have with God, he's the one with all the power. I think we fool ourselves into being little, powerful, godlike beings ourselves. But if we're honest, he's got all the power. And what Hosea wanted from Gomer was not to be forced back, but for her to choose to be a faithful lover of Hosea. And that's what God wants from you. He doesn't want to force you back. He doesn't want to prod you into some kind of intimacy with your heavenly father. He wants you to choose it for yourself. That's what God is looking for from you and from me. Today, I hope you'll make that choice to be a faithful lover of God. But how am I to respond? Well, like bookends, verses one and three pave the way. Here's the first way we respond to the love of God. Verse one. We return to the Lord. You see, come, let us return to the Lord. Um, Have you ever been driving back in the days before GPS and realized that you were lost? Okay, I imagine very few of us get lost nowadays because of our cell phones or our GPS. But way back in the day, I might be in Atlanta. Uh, I remember getting lost in Nashville. I've been lost in Greenville, South Carolina. I can remember vividly knowing that the road I'm on is just not right. But I can also remember back at that gas station or back at the interstate or back at the underpass or back at the water tower, I was on the right track. But I turned left and I should have gone straight. I turned right and I should have turned left. I'm not sure. And you've got your wife sitting next to you and you know what she's doing. We're lost. We're lost. We need to turn around. Now, I want to ask you, how do you feel? How do you feel when you realize I am lost and I know where to go back and get back on track? I remember the gas station because I wrote it down when the man gave me instructions or I remember the conversation that I had with my buddy who told me how to get there and he highlighted that gas station. So you go back to that gas station and then it comes back to you. I went straight. I was supposed to turn left. Doesn't that feel good then? Now you're driving. Oh, there's the park. Yeah, I remember him mentioning the park. Yeah. Oh, there's the water tower. Yeah, I remember that. That is the picture of returning to God, returning to God. God had commanded Hosea to enter into this very controversial marriage relationship. And when Hosea married Gomer, he he knew that she had already been cheating or that she was the cheating kind. Now, by the way, don't miss this in the analogy of Hosea and Gomer. There are few things that hurt us like marital infidelity. Few things. If you have endured marital infidelity, my heart hurts for you. Because I have seen couples through the years go through it, and it can be one of the most heart-wrenching, brutal processes anyone might ever have to experience. There's a real strong sense of violation when that happens. When someone cheats in a married, committed love relationship, there's a real sense of violation. There's a real sense that the trust is gone. The security is gone. Now, by the way, before we go too far, let me remind you, verse (laughs) 3, nobody restores like God. 
You can have that trust again. You can know that security again. Your love can be stronger than ever before. It's just going to take some time. But the heartbreak, especially in the beginning, is killer. Hosea was talking to a whole nation who had cheated on God. They had stepped out on God. I mean, if you know Israel's history, you know they were faithful in the dating process and the honeymoon. You know, when God said, Moses, lead my people, Israel followed, they responded. Now they grumbled a little bit in the wilderness. Sure, they had a misstep or two. But when Joshua took over and conquered the land of Canaan, the promised land was now theirs. They set up their kingdom. When David was on the throne, expanding the kingdom and winning the wars and making offerings to God, man, he was just showering the nation with blessing. But no sooner did they set up house, no sooner did they get things the way they wanted to be, and Israel started sleeping with other gods. She started flirting with other religions. She started cheating with other deities. You see, just as God was then and is now waiting to shower His love on His people, He's waiting for many of us to return today. He's waiting for many of us to return. He's waiting right now for some of you to return. We've been drawn away by something. And like I said, it doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to be adulterous. But something has distracted us. We've been lured or lulled into some sort of apathy toward God. We're worshiping at the altar of success. Because that's what matters most to us. We're worshiping at the altar of pornography because we just won't own up to our failure. We're worshiping at the altar of gambling, of recreation, a poor sense of priority, of money and materialism. God wants us to come back. But here's a big idea. And this sounds really simple on the outset. But watch. In order to return to God, you have to leave where you are. In order to return to God, like verse 1... You have to leave where you are. Now, I bring that to your attention because i got to be honest with you. Many of us, including your pastor, would like to stay involved in some sort of twisted love triangle with God. I want to stay where I am because where I am is what I've set out to do. Where I am is what I'm all about. And the real blessing would be if God would come over here to me and join me and bless me. I'll be very, very transparent to you. When I was putting this together this week, God really hit me with one big thought. I don't struggle with pornography. I don't struggle with drugs. I don't struggle with other women. Uh, You know what I struggle with? Success. For 20 plus years, I've been married to this church. And I live and die with this church. And when things are going great, I'm feeling good about myself and good about my work. But when things aren't going so well, it hurts me to the core. When marriages break up and I can't seem to help someone, I lay awake at night beating myself up. Because here's what I want. I want to succeed in this church and that's good work. And I want God to get over here and help me. You see? But God said, Mike, you can't stay where you are. Caring about a lot of good things. Doing a lot of good things and expect me to come to you. You've got to come to me. If you want to return to God, you've got to leave where you are. Picture a wedding ceremony. You've probably been to a wedding in the last 12 months. I've been to four in the last six weeks. Done them. I'm tired of weddings. Had them up to here. Every Friday night, every Saturday night. Let me tell you what. In one way, they're all the same. One way, they're all the same. Where is the groom in a wedding ceremony? Right here, on the altar of God, standing next to the presumed man of God. And where is the bride? 
the bride's in one of those back rooms where they kind of keep her hidden. And then at just the right time, kaboom, the doors open. And there she is and the music plays. And what does she do? She leaves where she is and she comes to the groom. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus is described as the groom and we, his church, are described as his bride. So when you think about what God wants from you, it's this constant return. It's this constant leave where I am and get back to the altar. Leave where I am and get back to God. Do you know sometimes when people seek the counsel of a pastor or they seek the counsel of a a professional counselor, here's what they want. They want you as the counselor to identify the problem. Possibly assign blame, it's your fault, it's his fault, it's her fault, and then offer a solution. Now, that's not how I counsel. In my counseling, whether it's a problematic marriage, whether it's a broken home, whatever it is, I'm trying to get men and women to leave where they are and come back to God. Let's settle that first. Let's return to that first. That's what the return is all about. To return to God, you have to leave where you are. Here, here's number two, comes from verse three. Not only are we to return, number three, or number two, from verse three, we're to pursue the Lord. To pursue the Lord. That's what the word acknowledge means. Press on. Pursue the acknowledgement of God in your life. How do we acknowledge God in our lives? Pretty simple. Father, you are the authority in my life personally. Father, you are the authority in my work. Father, you are the authority in my home. You are the authority in our marriage. You are the authority with my money. You are the authority with my time. That's how we acknowledge, how we press on to acknowledge an intimate relationship with God. You know, in the Old Testament, especially the King James Version, they used to use the word knowledge or to know in a sexual way. I remember when we were kids, like eight years old, and the Sunday school teacher reading from the King James would say, and Sarah, or excuse me, and Abraham knew his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. And we giggle. We giggle. And he'd say, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and God gave them a son. They named him Samuel. In the book of Matthew, when Joseph finds out Mary is pregnant, the Bible says, but he did not know her until she gave birth to Jesus. He's talking about an intimacy there that's seldom understood. But it's far more than sex. Don't get hung up on the sex part of it. The problem with Israel and the problem with Gomer is that she had been intimate with other gods. She had known other gods. And believe me, because of Hosea's relationship with Gomer being played out in front of the people and the people understanding the messages from God, the message was coming through loud and clear. Stop worshiping Baal altogether. You don't get to save a little peace for the weekend. You don't get to save a little time in the summer. You don't get to save and reserve a little of your affection and intimacy for Baal. Stop worshiping God altogether and start worshiping the one true God altogether. You see, this is an intimate relationship God desires with you. That's what was costing Israel. They tipped their hat to God, acknowledged as I would say acknowledged, but the idea of pursuing, the idea of knowing intimately God was far from them. See, a relationship of love and trust, that's the foundation of the sexual union in marriage. 
God says, you're supposed to build the marriage first. Build the relationship first. Build the commitment first. And then, enjoy the sex. You see, God's love for you is not something He wants to share. Nor is your love for Him something He will share. Think about the very first commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. The very first, number one, you will have no other gods before me. The greatest commandment, which comes from Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and with all of your soul. One of my favorite passages comes from Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. The Bible says, understand therefore that the Lord your God is indeed God. We're not playing with these little idols built by human hands. We're not messing around with Baal. The God that you worship is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations. And he lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. You see, given this experience, Israel was receiving the message loud and clear. But how would they respond? Would they return? Would they leave where they are and return to him? And would they pursue that relationship even to the point of intimacy, exclusive intimacy with God? Now, I use the term periodically when I'm counseling premarital couples or, or I'm teaching you what the New Testament says about reserving sex for marriage. Here's that term, counterfeit intimacy. You ever heard me tell, talk about this? Counterfeit intimacy. When a couple has sex with one another outside of the marriage commitment, that bond of trust, That contractual covenant before God. They create some level of intimacy. But beware, it's counterfeit. The only reason you feel intimate with someone you've slept with is because you've been naked with them. See? You feel closer than you really are. You don't know how to communicate to that person. All you know is how to be naked with that person. That's counterfeit intimacy. You don't know how to help them solve their problems. You don't know how they're wired on the inside. You don't know how to honor one another mutually in a committed love relationship that's intimate. All you've done is be naked to each, with each other. It's counterfeit intimacy. Now, oh, here's, let me apply it. Some of you may be hurting today. Some of you may be hurting because your intimacy with God is counterfeit. It's superficial. We like the love triangle that we've assembled. We like flirting with God. We like to come to church periodically when it's convenient, you know. Especially when church makes us feel good. We really like those days. And all the while, we talk about our love for God. We might even pray about our love for God. We pitch a little money in the offering plate. But as soon as something happens, as soon as a circumstance raises up that frustrates you, that angers you, that you don't understand, bye-bye, you're done with God. Why? Because the intimacy, the closeness, it was counterfeit. It was based upon how God made you feel at a certain time. You see, I think we have a distorted intimacy with God. It's like we want to live with God for a while to kind of see how it works out. God won't have it. Hosea guided Israel to return to a faithful relationship with God. We've taken this relationship advice from chapter 6. How do I respond to this love? i got to return, man. i got to return. i got to leave where I am, and I've got to return. And number two, I've got to pursue it. Now look, I'll be honest with you. I'll bet I've done that a hundred times in my lifetime. In my own personal faith walk, 
And listen, I have never, thankfully, thankfully, not trying to sound pious, I've never run my life completely off in the ditch and had all kind of terrible baggage to try and untangle. No. But hundreds of times in my lifetime, I've realized, you know what? I can't go with God and stay here. I got to go there. You know what? When I get there and I begin to sense that restoration, when I begin to enjoy that feeling of a clear conscience, man, I'm going to lean hard into this thing and I'm going to pursue it. That's my challenge to you today. Would you stand? I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes to process what we've talked about. Then I'm going to pray. And if after this service, you are the kind of person that realizes uh, it's time to to change. It's time to, to, to renew. It's time to recommit. I'm going to be standing right down front, and I hope you'll come find me. Father, we give you this time. We pause from our busy, busy lives from our entertaining lives. We pause from our rewarding lives. We pause from lives that are blessed by you to remember that you want our love exclusively. Now, Father, I love a lot of people and a lot of things, but I want to love you most of all. And I love this place, and I love my work, and I love the people I work with and the people that I work for. But Father, I want to love you exclusively. Forgive us for trying to twist your arm into our little program and plan and give us the willingness, the surrender, the flexibility to leave where we are and get back to you. Reveal the sin we need to confess, Father. Reveal the the good things that while they're not immoral or out of bounds, they are distracting to us. And may we simplify our faith like never before to return and to pursue. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who bought us with a price. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church. Make it a fantastic week, all right? I'll see you next time.